0: All right, welcome everybody to the Real Crusade's History Podcast. We're already to our fifth episode in this uh, First Crusade podcast series. It almost feels like just yesterday we, we started with number one. So so here we are. Um, we're going to be talking today about the fall of Antioch and the epic battle of Antioch against Kerboga. Uh, we are still in the year 1098. And... Um, we just finished talking about the rather lengthy siege of Antioch, and we are going to start off with this point of Bowman's ruse. Uh, is he going to be able to pull it off? We're going to find out tonight. So, uh, my name is Jay Stephen Roberts, and I'm also joined by Scott Amos. Scott, welcome aboard. Always glad to be here, Stephen. Always glad to have you. And we've also got Rand. Welcome, Rand.
1: Thank
0: you, absolutely, thanks for having me. All right, great to have you, Rand. And we're very pleased to welcome back our academic guest, uh, Dr. William Hamblin. Dr. Hamblin, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're getting into um, this kind of critical moment in the Siege of Antioch. So last time, guys, we were talking about, um, you know, the Crusaders had been outside of Antioch for months and months, I mean, the siege began back in 1097 in October, and, you know, we're getting into the summertime, uh, uh, May and into June. So, I mean, it just gives you an idea of how long this had been going on. There had been a couple of battles. Uh, the Crusaders had defeated uh, a couple of attempts to reinforce Antioch from Aleppo and Damascus. And we actually uh, just heard, too, about how uh, Tatikios, the Byzantine uh, representative who was there with a small Byzantine contingent has also has pulled out at this point and uh, we also have talked about how the fact that Stephen of Blois the Count of Blois and Chartres he also is going to leave uh, on June 2nd uh, he apparently felt that things were going were were so difficult that he wasn't going to attempt to um, be involved any longer in this siege, and desertions in general had been a problem uh, throughout this long siege, but um, this was one of the, the major leaders leaving, one who wasn't particularly active or particularly noteworthy for his, uh, for his leadership skills, I suppose, but Stephen Blois pulls out on June 2nd and leaves with his troops, and interestingly, something his,
1: uh, something his fiery wife will never let him live down. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately <laughs> for
0: him, he was married to a Norman. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I would have, have been in his shoes after reading about it. Yeah, Adela of Normandy. She was, she was pretty rough. Uh, I'm actually, yeah, I was re- like it. I was recently reading about her. Uh, she was kind of involved in her uh, her brother King Henry I's uh, intrigues and some of his his stuff that was going on back in England, but not to uh, to divert from what we're talking about, though. But but yeah. So June second, the day that Stephen of Blois leaves, is also going to be the night that Bowman is going to spring his trap. Uh, as we talked about last time, Bowman had been in communication with a rogue Armenian who was kind of going to basically be acting as a double agent, a Muslim Armenian. Armenian named Firuz, who was in control of one of the towers of Antioch. He was uh, the captain of one of those towers. Bohemond had turned him into a double agent, and this guy Firuz was in, uh, intending to surrender this tower to Bohemond at the appropriate time. So, we, we talked a little bit last time too about the fact that there had been this major uh, meeting, among the leaders, the, uh, the, the leading noblemen of uh, the Crusaders. And they had basically agreed that if Bohemond could get them into Antioch, uh, they were going to let him have it. Uh, not everybody agreed to this, but a lot of people were were okay with this because they felt that Bohemond was going to be their best bet to, to get inside of of Antioch, based on his previous performance in a, in a variety of uh, areas in this crusade. So, let's talk about Bowman's trap and um, uh, kind of how his plot unfolded. Um, I'm going to turn to our academic guest here, Dr. Hamblin. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, what happens on that on uh, the night of June 3rd?
2: Well, it's, uh, in part, it's a very secret plan and in part it, uh, probably the uh, other commanders uh, knew what's going on. They had agreed that if Bohman could take the city, that he could more or less inherit the city and become the ruler. And his plan was, uh, what you might call a special forces operation. He, he, first of all, sent off, uh, some troops, uh, on a fake foraging expedition kind of just the the Turks in the city and up on the Citadel could watch the Crusader movements and they saw a big column of troops uh, leaving and that the purpose of this was uh, first to uh, You know kind of lower their their care and observation and secondly if, if a portion of the army has gone They shouldn't be expecting an assault so so this group went off and then circled around and at night came back in the um uh, to the south under cover of darkness and ferruz seems to have had a a tower on the s- south wall probably part way up the uh the mountain towards the citadel uh that wall would have been less uh guarded than the walls down in the valley because most of the Crusader troops were in the valley. Uh, So Firouz is in charge of this wall. There's probably only just a few uh, guards there and their their purpose is to observe and then summon help if there's a problem. And Firouz lets down a rope, they tie a kind of a rope ladder uh, to it and and it is pulled up, secured on the top of the wall, and then the crusaders start going up one by one. Now, one of the men that was there is the author of the anonymous, uh, Gesta Francorum. We don't know his name, but he was apparently actually present. And it's kind of rare that you get a, a operation like that where a, an eyewitness, not only an eyewitness, but a participant uh, explains the information. So their first goal, get in the tower. Now notice they're not getting in a gate because the gates have many more men by them. And it's very difficult to, to bribe, you know, 100 at a hundred gates, the guards at a gate versus a few at a tower. Anyway, they get up the tower they have some problems because uh, their rope kind of collapses and they start to panic, but they get a second ladder up there. They get onto the tower and once they do, they sound a, a trumpet. Now this is probably, at about dawn. They would have done the operation, you know, when it was uh, dark, but just getting enough light. They wanted to be up there so that the actual battle would have some light in it, because night operations in medieval times were very difficult. So they get to the top, they sound these trumpets, and that was the signal for the other uh, armies to start uh, attacking. And, And part of the reason the other armies, the other Crusader armies started attacking was to draw off the Turks away from the, the Crusader uh, getting into the, the city uh, you know, to, to draw the armies off because now the, the Turks are becoming confused. Are they in the city? Oh. Where are they in the city? Where are they attacking? And, and so on. And the second goal then of Bowman's group is to uh, open a gate because if you can get a gate open, you, with, the men they, with the men they had in the tower, there weren't enough to take the city they may you had a few dozen. If you can get a gate open, then the whole army can start moving in and, and the whole balance of power shifts dramatically. So, so that's their next goal is to open the gates. And uh, as they do, the Turks start to panic and the panic is not just that there are crusaders in the town. The panic is they don't know what's going on. There's no way for them to have accurate information of which gate has fallen. Uh, what tower did they take? so most of the turks are running around in utter confusion and in that situation they panic and they start to scatter and that of course simply uh furthers the uh success of this uh secret invasion and kind of special forces operation that the boymond and his uh you know kind of elite normans did Uh, i'll let somebody else pick up the story from there if you want or i can keep going up to you
0: well, I want to just kind of see if I can imagine this uh, situation here. So, would they have actually sounded the alert trumpet before they got a gate open? Because uh, alert-
2: it's not it's not clear to me uh, which they did. Um, the problem Seems like is you want to get
0: that gate open first. It,
2: that that very well, well may be the case, but the problem is to get which gate they got to and how they could get it open um, in time, it, I, I mean, it's just not clear to me. So, it, it very well be, may have been though that they got a gate open and sounded the trumpet. So, you know, it, it occurred in the opposite direction. To,
1: to so it's not- uh, to, to use it, <clears> that's <throat> uh, very common uh, in, in, uh, in modern military operations. Uh, no, no plan survives first contact. <laughs> and uh, that's that's kind of what always reminded me of the the this, this initial entry into Antioch. It, it really it, it was probably just a lot of chaos on both sides. Um, you know, it was a, and it's just the, the the Crusaders were a little bit more effective at controlling that chaos than than, than the Antioch garrison was. Um, and the
2: Crusaders knew what they were doing; that at least they yeah. had a general plan, whereas the Turks had no idea what was going on. And which gate
3: was the first to be open?
2: I'm I'm not sure. It's it's not recorded. Uh, it may be recorded. But if it is, I can't remember. So um, yeah, I logically, just,
1: does, but. yeah, logically looking at the looking at the, the the map of Antioch at that time and where you know where Bowman's uh, attack was supposed to have uh, been conducted. By the way, I'm getting my information from uh, John uh, Victory in the East. Right. Um, but Great. the the closest the closest gate uh, to where he's thought to have uh, led his um, raid was uh, is the St. George Gate. Right, but
2: That's, there's a there's a problem with that in that it's it's on the other side of the Orantes from all the other uh, access points. Yeah. So how you know how that would have worked? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. There's there's. The problem with crusading sources is there's there's a lot more that they don't tell us uh, than that yeah. they tell us, and so we're always left with with questions. But uh, that would be my guess is St George Gate, but I'm not uh, certain on that.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So this is just a really uh, powerful moment in the First Crusade, uh, kind of how this this really important siege was was decided you know, on just this one little tower on Antioch, and basically a flimsy rope ladder is what is what made this whole thing possible. So, you know, Boehmann himself was one of the first to climb up that ladder, in fact. Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's a pretty amazing uh, story. You know, you've got this small number of Normans who, who are going to be climbing up this ladder and getting control of this tower, and and yeah, I, th- I think the element of surprise is uh, is the big thing here. I mean, the chaos that this is going to create once, you know, especially once uh, they can get a gate open and um, they can start getting uh, the other troops in the city. I mean, you can see how the situation is just going to get out of control for the Turkish garrison very quickly. And on top of that, um, um, I know that uh, there were quite a few Christians already within Antioch. And uh I, I'm not a big fan of Stephen Runciman, but I, I do remember him talking about how um, a lot of the local Armenians and Greeks within Antioch kind of joined the Crusaders in in attacking the the, the local Turks, uh, or attacking the, the Turkish garrison. And so th- this was this was a very difficult situation for Yagi Sihan's uh, garrison to keep control of. And Yagi Sihan himself is going to pretty much flee almost immediately. And of course, that's always a... A devastating thing when you've got uh, the person who's in overall command just pulling out. Um, he tries to to escape. He's actually uh, captured by an Armenian. Apparently, uh, he falls from his horse and he's he's left for dead by his companions. And one of the local Armenians uh, cuts his head off and takes it to Bohemund. Uh, you know, most likely, kind of once a lot of this stuff is dying down. But but yeah, there's there's a. a a, a very violent uh, sack of the city. Uh, Antioch is, uh, is uh, put to the sack. Uh, so, does anybody else have any comments about this particular uh, point in the siege or uh, in the fall of Antioch, or do we want to move on? Yeah, I, you
3: know, I've read that there was a lot. Of, there was a lot of indiscriminate killing. That you know, in the dark, the Crusaders couldn't see who they were killing, and a lot of. Christians were killed. I, I mean, I don't know. What truth
2: is there to that? Uh, I think it's it's pretty certain that that happened uh, uh, the crusaders but the crusader stale, sources stale, is, I guess is what I th- oh, well, the crusader sources say it happens. That is yeah. it's not the Muslims blaming the crusaders. And they're somewhat apologetic for that, but but the fundamental problem is they don't have enough cultural, uh, nuance in their understanding of Middle Eastern culture to distinguish a Greek and Armenian or a Syriac or a Jew or a Muslim uh, solely on the basis of physical appearance or, or dress. And so part of it is, uh, simply confusion on their part. Uh, they, they kill a person and they don't, they think it's a Muslim, but they don't know that it's really a Greek or an Armenian or someone. So, so that's, uh, I think it's, it's fundamentally a function of confusion and uncertainty and, uh, on the crusader part. And they're going to err on the side of, of, uh, killing a person who's a potential enemy as opposed to yeah. asking, are you a Muslim or are you a Christian? You know, that type of thing.
3: But scale wise, the, the oh, Christians it, it, who took the crusaders, side
0: so, i guess we have I to remember out, too that those were killed. Ibn al-Athir tells us that Yagi Sihan threw a lot of the Christians out of right. of Antioch yeah. so there there probably were a lot of eastern christians in the crusader camp when this was going on and again you know there would have been eastern christians uh, you know with the crusaders when they were they were running around antioch uh, taking control of things so i do think we have to be careful about um, you know i'm sure you know there's always uh, friendly fire i guess if you will in in warfare that that does happen at times but to what extent that was going on i mean i don't i, I don't think we can we can assume that that, that there was just like uh you know, mass slaughter of uh, no. the Christian population of, of Antioch.
1: No, it well, was it was mostly it was mostly a, a function of, you know, and what you're seeing in the Chronicles is, you know, yes, the the many of the men who wrote the Chronicles and the histories accompanied the army, but a lot of these guys weren't military men by profession. So that's you know, it's they're they're kind of maybe, you know, maybe they saw some isolated incidents and and you know were maybe shocked and or 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 uh uh, you know, put off by it, and and sort of, you know, it, that's what stuck in their mind when they, you know, when they when they wrote their accounts of it, um, you know. Whereas a whereas somebody with a little more military experience could have looked at that and been like, oh no, that was a, you know, that was that was just confusion, that was fog of war, that was, you know, hey, you didn't know who these people were. They rushed out at us with weapons. They looked like, you know, they they looked like Muslims, you know. Who, you know it, it it was probably something that was a lot more explainable um as opposed to just, oh yeah, we just came in here and like massacred everybody because because those same chronicles then you know and and ones that come just after talk about uh, you know there' being a very healthy native Christian presence in antioch uh, even just shortly after that. so you know they they obviously didn't they didn't wipe everyone out, you know or not even or not even close to everyone. um so it's uh, it, it's always you always have to you always have to read between the lines a little bit. Uh, well, there was an
3: evil to tendency toward hyperbole there too. Yeah, in these writings,
0: it's kind of difficult to imagine. I think sometimes what the sacking of a city would have looked like. I mean, I think it certainly would have been a mm-hmm. a violent affair. You know, there would have been. Uh, in, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of looting that goes on in that situation. You know. Some of yeah. the upper upper nobility guys are going to be concerned with getting control of the strategic, you know, portions of the city. Like we know, Bowman, for example, tried to get get into the citadel immediately. He wasn't able to, so he took possession of uh, a portion of the walls by the citadel. Raymond of Toulouse takes control of the palace. Um, so, but you know, there's a, there's also going to be foot soldiers who are going to just run around and try to to get some some property. You know, that just like yeah. sort of like a looting and that sort of thing. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, it's, it's going to be an incredibly violent um, and chaotic affair, but I also think we, we want got to be careful about being too extreme in the way we look at at it. Like, you're not going to – it's not going to be like just – I think in Hollywood, they often show it like people just running around swinging swords randomly, you know, kind of screaming at the top of <laughs> – ah, I, I mean, it wasn't that either. I mean, you know, yeah. so
2: <laughs> – we, we actually um, – have a better grip on this from the sack of Constantinople in 1204, where we have more eyewitnesses and you can get a sense of this, but most of the people in the city are going to be hiding. They're not going to be running around. They're they're going to hide. And and so most of them will probably successfully hide because they know the town and the crusaders don't know the town. Uh, Your problem is going to be if you are in a place where there is potential wealth to be had and if you try to stop the crusaders from stealing something that they, you know, whatever silk jacket or something, uh, yeah. they might just beat you. But, but we do know the nature of sacks in general from things like, uh, where we have many more narrative sources from, um, uh, the 30 years war and Napoleonic yeah. Wars and things like that. And, and they could be very bloody affairs. The, the, This it's kind of crusaders gone wild stuff where they just the commanders lose control of the army in some ways. And I think the best manifestation of this is that they failed to secure the, the the citadel and that's, that's a strategically a disaster from their perspective, especially as soon as Karbova arrives. And if they had had control of their army, they probably could have secured the citadel. And the fact that they didn't means, I mean, Bohemond tries, but most of the soldiers are, are just not under orders at this time. They're not going to be obeying oh, yeah. their you know, commanders.
0: Right. And the, the leaders of the army aren't going to be concerning themselves with, you know, well, is is, is that infantryman off running, running, you know, raping somebody or something like that? I mean, yeah, that's not going to be the... Um, so there's all there's going to be all kinds of like sort of low level violence I guess going on as as the common soldiers kind of you know sort of have free reign at this point, but the the main leaders are going to be concerning themselves with these strategic points in the in the city. So so yeah that's that's where we are now. Um, you know we we have this uh, violent sack of Antioch on the night of June 3rd, and by morning it's pretty much over. Um, you know the the Turkish garrison has been slaughtered. Uh, what's left of the Turkish garrison has managed to occupy the citadel, as uh, Dr. Hamlin was, was talking about. And, of course, we also know um, that Karabaka is is on the way. And, in fact, what's very interesting is that the next day, or uh, two days later, June 5th, Karabaka's troops begin arriving, and they begin to surround Antioch. And so we kind of, I mean, in every single Crusades book, we get this phrase, the besiegers became the besieged. The Crusaders are now trapped inside of Antioch to an extent. Um, you know, the the walls are still very much intact because the city was taken by a, um, <clears throat> a subterfuge, not by um, by storm. So they, they can, you know, protect themselves inside of Antioch. But but Kerbogha uh, shows up, his army... It's very large so it takes quite a while for the army to, to uh you know be, be completely put in place but the army is able to completely surround Antioch and they're able to overrun some of the small fortresses nearby that uh, the crusaders had taken control of and the the crusaders are pretty much pinned inside of Antioch at that point point. and of course Antioch has just endured a uh, months-long siege food is now scarce in this city once again the Crusaders are facing the threat of starvation. So, <clears throat> so yeah, that's that's where we are at this point. Um, does anybody want to talk about uh, about what's going on right now? Uh, Kerboga is is uh, putting the city to siege. Uh, what is going to be the next move of the Crusaders? Well, I,
2: I think we should note that uh, Kerbogha is. Um the Crusaders, basically all the food in the city had been used up during the, the first siege, but all the food outside the city had also been used up in the first siege as well. And so when Karaboga arrives, he is going to face a, a problem of logistically maintaining his army uh, during the siege as well. Now, he's got an advantage because he can go to Aleppo and, and different Muslim cities and buy food and ship it in. His, his real problem is probably pasture for his horses, uh, because his army is largely cavalry, and uh, and so he's he's got a, a bunch of logistical pressures on him uh, that are not as bad as the Crusaders, but they are serious enough to help uh, kind of push his decision making process one way or the other as the as the siege progresses.
0: And we also know that Kerbuka had an issue of the unity within his army. He had a lot of uh, sort of lower level emirs underneath him. And so he had kind of this coalition force that was not particularly cohesive. Uh, a lot of these guys weren't particularly interested in dying for Karabagah, if you will. So he had a very large army, but I guess the question was how motivated was his army? I'm sorry, go ahead, Dr. Hamlin.
2: Well, it's, it's just that the Syrian princes feared uh, more than they feared the crusaders probably in the sense that if he came in, they'd, uh, either become his vassals or he'd just take over their, uh, their cities from them. The crusaders, uh, in some ways would do the same thing, but they know the crusaders are thinking about Jerusalem. And, uh, so, you know, they, they feel that Kerabolda is, is, probably just the same type of threat, a different threat, but still, they, they're, uh, if he wins, they'll, they'll be on his side, but the minute he starts to lose, uh, their uh, loyalty is going to be, become quite questionable.
1: Yeah, I, I think to piggyback on that, you know, a very important distinction to make between uh, the, the Crusaders and Carabagas and is Carabagas is may have a very large and very impressive army, Um, but it is, it is, there's a division of, are, are very run pretty deeply through it. Uh, also none of them are really desperate. Um, the crusaders are kind of in a Cortez moment right, right now. Like they, this is it. If they don't, if they don't succeed here, and and they've been in a couple of those already, but if they don't succeed here, um, they're done. And, and not only are they done, but they're, they're probably all going to die. Um, you know, uh, except maybe a few lucky ones who are able to get away, but that's not guaranteed. So, um, you know, yes, while the Crusaders may have some divisions within themselves as well, um, the, uh, desperation uh, has a habit of, of uh, turning rivals into, in, into allies very quickly. And and uh, I, think they, I think they're I think they all, you know, that the Crusaders at this point were, were pretty united in, hey, if we don't get through this, we're, we're all dead. Um, so,
0: yeah, yeah, and and um, you know they'd already been through quite a bit of uh, difficult fighting over the course of this crusade. I know one thing that uh, Christopher Tyrman points out in God's War is that as the first crusade went along, the fighting effectiveness of the this uh, army of crusaders kind of increased because they become more experienced, they become better at working together. So so yeah, there, there's kind of this, this gradual process of these guys kind of becoming really hardened, effective veterans in a, in a certain respect. So
2: the, the other aspect of that is that, um, that their numbers decrease, but of those that survive, they're higher quality troops than were the, the original uh, crusaders who you know came down to Constantinople. Uh, and so mm-hmm. troop quality increases but also probably the, the amount of armor increases as well, because as a crusader dies, somebody's going to take his armor and put it on. When they kill a Turk, they're going to take whatever armor he has. There's description of, a, of soldiers on the crusader army carrying Turkish shields and things like this. So, mm-hmm. so it, the quality increases, but so does the, uh, what you might call the, the heaviness of their equipment. There's, there's a higher percentage of men with male coats, at antioch than there would have been at nicaea or uh, uh another question
3: what was in it for the emirs who allied
2: with kerboga you mean what was their what were their personal goals yeah what what what, what would be in it for that you know this was well, right um basically if, if say Dukak comes on the campaign and he, he is his army is there. If Karbulga takes Antioch, Dukak is not gonna get Antioch. He he does not personally increase his domain in the slightest. He he will probably get a share of the spoils, the slaves, treasure, whatever that might be but he's not going to increase his political power. And relatively speaking, his political power will decrease because Kerboga is going to rule Antioch directly now, and that's going to increase his authority, thereby making him uh, more powerful proportionally than, than he had been before. So uh, most of the ordinary soldiers are not motivated by jihad at this time because they're not starting to conceptualize the struggle with the crusaders as as a religious struggle at this point. For for them at this point, it it is a political military struggle. The the, the crusaders see it as a religious war. The Muslims not yet. They they will quite soon, but at this point, these are just an enemy, probably no different conceptually than the Byzantines. The average uh, soldier is fighting for uh, plunder. Uh, The, the, the rulers had what was called an Askar, which is essentially a professional standing army and they are the Lord's uh, personal troops. They were very well paid and there some of them are going to like get command positions. If, if they've conquered Antioch and the surrounding area, some of these emirs of Karaboga's personal emirs, not, not the vassals, they would have then been placed in positions of power. So, you know, there'd be a wide range of of, uh, motivation for the Crusader army. But a lot of them would feel threatened by a Caraboga victory. Or for Caraboga's army.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Thanks for that explanation, Dr. Hamblin. So so at this point, um, the Crusaders, again, are in a very desperate situation. Uh, Meanwhile... um, While this is going on, uh, Stephen of Blois, who has fled, is going to encounter um, Alexius Comnenus in Anatolia. And Alexius had apparently been on his way with an army to reinforce Antioch. And uh, based on Stephen's reports, Stephen, of course, is uh, very eager to justify his flight from Antioch. And so he's going to tell Alexius it's all done. You know, they've been defeated, uh, everybody's dead, forget it, and Alexius says, well, okay, and he decides to turn his army around and head back to Constantinople. Uh, I, we kind of mentioned a little bit of that last time, but it, it sort of highlights the desperate situation that the Crusaders were in. They really were sort of, they didn't have any any relief on the way, and they were pinned inside of Antioch. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it was probably pretty difficult to staffing the walls. I mean, Antioch is so enormous and the fortifications are, are very considerable. And, you know, that's those walls have got to be guarded, obviously. Um, you know, otherwise the same thing that happened uh, to uh, Yagi Seahen's garrison could happen to the Crusaders. So it, it must have been a high stress situation. You know, food is scarce. You're trying to, to you know, maintain um, the defense of the city. And, um, you know, people, people are, are in a difficult situation here. So, one thing that begins to manifest is uh, the, this religious devotion uh, that frequently has uh, helped the crusaders through difficult situations. Be- before you go on to that, just, just one sure. point about the, the
2: tactical situation of the crusaders, and that is the Turks hold the citadel, which is a self contained castle that can be defended independent of the city. There is, however, no barrier, no fortification barrier between the citadel and the lower city. And and so that creates a real tactical problem. And the only thing that that saves them, the the Turks attack from the citadel into the city, but since it's up on a really kind of craggy, uh, steep mountain slope, the citadel is, uh, the Attacks down into the city from that are are quite difficult and the crusaders hold them off. And eventually they build some barricades around the citadel to stop, uh, you know, to try to uh, control Turkish uh, raids out of the citadel. But that simply compounds the problem. Uh, Even holding the citadel, they would have had a problem against Karaboga. But without that, it's essentially like having an open gate in the city that you have to defend with a barricade. And how many men were placed it, in the citadel? It, um, I mean, we, we don't have any sources on that, but it was—it was certainly a few thousand. Would have and been also, Ker,
0: Kierpaka, um was able to reinforce that citadel. Like, right, it wasn't just the original guys who had fled to that citadel. Kerbuka was—he's—he's going to put well, all kinds of his own guys in, in it, there too. It's—it's it's not just that
2: that he kicks out Yagi Sian's son and puts one of his own emirs in charge of the citadel. So. He, he not only sends reinforcements, but he actually occupies it. And this is part of his uh, kind of arrogance to his to the lower vassals uh, that instead of saying we're all in it together and we all get a share of the plunder, he just takes the citadel from Yagi Sian's son, who had helped defend it for you know six weeks or whatever. And uh, that type of attitude further antagonizes his uh, vassals and emirs
0: yeah, that, that could have uh, easily been a, uh, a morale killer there, um, just just knowing that, that was how, how the defender of, or somebody who'd been involved in the defense of Antioch had been treated. So, so um, I guess we're going to move on now to, you know, what's going on inside of Antioch as the Crusaders are, are trying to defend the city. There is this guy named Peter Bartholomew, who is, you know, he's. Just, I think in some sources he's, a, he's described as a, a religious of some sort. He's a poor provincial, uh, Provençal, who so uh, basically one, one of these southern French um, individuals who would have been uh, with the army of Raymond of Toulouse. And this guy, Peter Bartholomew, approaches Count Raymond with tales of these visions from Saint Andrew, and he says that Saint Andrew has told him that. The holy lance, which that is a sacred relic in uh, the Christian tradition, this lance that would have been used to pierce Christ while he was hanging from the cross on uh, uh, at his death. Um, St. Andrew has revealed to Peter Bartholomew, he says, that this relic can be found buried under the ca- um, altar of the Cathedral of St. Peter. So this is one of the major churches in in Antioch, um, a church named after St. Peter, because of course Antioch is associated with St. Peter, he's the apostle who evangelized Antioch. And so this, the idea of finding a relic like this, this would have been a very meaningful thing to to the Crusaders. So Raymond actually orders that an excavation be uh, initiated inside of St. Peter's. Um, so they're going to be digging underneath the altar. Uh, and in fact, Peter Bartholomew apparently is one of the individuals digging inside of this hole. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people who are skeptical. There's a lot of people who, uh, believe in, in Peter's visions, but, but, uh, one day Peter apparently jumps out of this hole and he has found, he says, the Holy Lance. He's got this iron shard. This is the Holy Lance. This is the relic. Um, uh. Of an item that actually touched Christ, uh, this you know this is a holy object. Uh, we can kind of talk a little bit about, um, I guess, how relics were viewed uh, by medieval Christians. It's it's this idea that God kind of acts through the material world um, and uh, sort of uh, brings uh, a spiritual benefit about through these material signs. Um, kind of you know similarly to how you know this whole idea that Christ. Ah, uh, redeemed the world through the incarnation, through you know becoming man. But so, so yeah, this this relic is discovered, and you know, there's a lot of people who are skeptical. In fact, I think it's interesting. Bishop Adamar is uh, one of the the more noteworthy skeptics, but for a lot of the the common people in this ar- in the army, this is a this is a really marvelous sign. This is this is a sign from God that He has not abandoned them, that they are going to be able to come through this siege victorious. So it's kind of, it's a morale booster for the Crusaders. Does anybody want to talk about the Holy Lance at this point?
3: I I just have one question here before we move on. Uh, At the time, what was the age of the structure the church? I'm sorry, what was that, Scott? What was the age of the structure the church?
1: Yeah, most of them dated uh, back to uh, the Constantinian era. So, uh, kind of, you know, between Saint Saint Helena. Um, I, I'm not sure if she was responsible for, for building that church. I don't think so. But it it would have been uh, um, it would have been from the the, the later Roman period, uh, probably early you know early Byzantine. It would have been era.
3: five or six hundred years old at, at at that time.
1: at, at most. At most.
3: Yeah,
0: Wadner recent
3: recently built. Okay,
1: no,
0: uh-uh. it would have been basically a Byzantine church is what we're talking yeah. about. So right. already
3: very
2: old
0: at the time. Yeah,
2: the um, the the patriarch of the Syriac Church uh, claimed Petrine authority from uh, Saint Peter, who founded the church in Antioch according to the New Testament. So it's very important from, I mean, it, it had a Rome like uh, sense to the Syriac Christians that probably the Crusaders didn't quite conceptualize. So, so it was a very important center for, for Middle Eastern Syriac Christians. I, I think it's worth noting that um, basically the idea of a relic is that, that uh, the a person who is imbued with the Holy spirit and especially Christ, who is, you know, God himself or the son of God, uh, with, when they touch things, they transfer holiness, which is, is not an abstract, but it is a a very real thing. It's kind of like being radioactive. And so if if you're radioactive and you touch something, it becomes radioactive and that power is, is never diffused. It remains in, the relic, uh, which could be the bones of a person, the hair could be the clothing. They wore uh, a tooth, you know, it can be anything. Uh, and the Supreme relics are the relics of Christ's crucifixion because they, they're associated with Christ directly as opposed to St. Peter or someone else indirectly. And, and they, uh, also are associated with his blood, which from the medieval Catholic uh, conceptualization of, of the mass and and the blood of Christ Christ's blood on the, that, that touched these relics was, uh, you know, especially holy. And so the nails of the crucifixion, the, the, the cross itself, the uh, true cross is going to become the supreme relic of the crusaders. Um, the crown of thorns which eventually ends up in the hands of St. Louis uh, uh, and is, uh, he builds an entire church just to ho- uh, house the crown of thorns. The, uh, and then the lance that pierced Christ's side, which is this true lance or the lance that Peter is supposed to have found that, that again would have the blood on it. And, and likewise, the, the chalice or, or the Holy grail mythology is associated with Christ's blood as it develops maybe beginning in this time, but probably a little bit later on. Uh, and so if this is really is the lance, uh, and there's, again, there's doubt among the crusaders about that, but if it really is the lance, then it is a supremely important, you know, one of the top half a dozen or dozen relics in the world because of its direct association with Christ and his blood and the crucifixion.
0: Yeah, this is still very much a concept that uh, we have in uh, the Catholic Church. This idea that you know God uses the the physical world or these physical objects as kind of um, uh, these um, it's 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 a vehicle in some sense for, like for his, right. It's a, it's a conduit. It's um, you know this is so um, this so this would have been a very powerful you know sign from God. This is a this is um, this was something that. Uh, would have been very like like you're like Dr. Hamlin's pointing out. This would have been incredibly uh, important to to the crusading army. This is a a um, you know it's going to be a totem uh, in in the at the at the Battle of uh, Antioch. This is something <laughs> they're going to actually carry into battle with them. So so yeah, the Holy Lance uh, would have been an incredibly important relic. But um, yeah, does anybody else have any any other comments about uh, the Holy Lance? Well. Now, another
3: holy lance existed in uh, Constantinople. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the, uh, you know, I know Audemars of Lepuy was quite doubtful of the
2: authenticity of the... He probably would have been shown that lance because of his, uh, you know, the supreme status as the legate of the Pope, the patriarch or whoever would have taken him around and said, you know, here's our... Most holy uh, relic. So he probably seen it personally in Constantinople, which might explain part of his skepticism.
1: Actually, uh, it, it, from from many of the sources, you get that uh, not not only or but actually uh, a, a, I would say a decent majority of the um, you know the more higher ranking clergy uh, that that accompanied the the crusade were were rather skeptical um, of it. In fact, uh, you had some like. Uh, the, uh, the the um, the Norman um, bishop who would uh, who had eventually become the first patriarch the first Latin patriarch of Jerusalem um, who accompanied Robert of Normandy I can't remember his name um, he he expressed he openly expressed uh, uh, disbelief at it um, and and was made yeah. made no attempt to hide his uh, to hide his skepticism. Uh, about it. So um it, it's a it's a very interesting case study in the in the you know the, the 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 more educated compared to uh you know the more the more popular uh, you know commoner and stuff like that and right. uh
2: yeah it's um it's important to note that you know often people say well medieval you know, christians were just completely gullible on everything but they they really weren't. They they had a lot of skepticism. Uh, a lot of times, their skepticism was based on different things than uh, a modern uh, skepticism. But you know, which is essentially materialistic. Uh, so, Adamar believed in the spiritual reality of, of relics. He just didn't necessarily believe that this one uh, was real, was authentic. So
0: right. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm... Go ahead. Oh I, well, I was just going to say I think that you know. This this was something that was would have been maybe for the common soldier. This would have been kind of particularly potent to them, just because you know they are going to be um, maybe in the most difficult situation in some respects, because they uh, you know they they don't have the means of uh, some of the upper nobility, and so kind of this this sort of sign uh, is is going to be powerful for for somebody who just is a you know an ordinary soldier who. Um, is you know terrified for his life uh, has no idea what's coming so i was just going to say that but what were you going to say scott well i I was just going to say the
3: you know the physical realities of you know where the lance was discovered you know how deep was it buried how long it took them to finally find it you know it just it just makes me wonder about the whole i mean which one was really authentic i mean did peter actually have a vision you know was he talking about the real thing apparently it took quite a while to find it and yeah they dug up the whole floor of a you know the floor would have been paved with stone and then there would have been some kind of under you know rubble underlayment under that and i mean it was it was a you know, physically, quite a job to do it, and apparently took a good part of a day to find it.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the ultra skeptic would say that uh, he uh, Bartholomew had it on him and planted it. And it and right. And planted yeah,
3: but that, but, but from, that's from the account I've so read dead. of of it. Of, How it was discovered that sounds like it would have been
0: a pretty impossible thing to do.
2: Well, Raymond of uh, the historian Raymond, who was with uh, Count
0: Raymond, Count
2: Count Raymond, and he uh participated in the dig and he was in there digging, he claims to have been the first person to have seen it and that it was just the tip the point was kind of sticking out of the ground and he when he sees it he he kneels down and kisses it I and mean, you know, this is there's no reason to think that he's not telling the truth about that uh so they clearly found something and you know piece of iron and i think some of the the issue was also that it was a fragment that it wasn't these relics can be fragmented right you can uh, Take a finger of a saint, or maybe just the, the one part of the finger bone, and the holiness is still 100% in, in whatever. So, if this was just a, a bit of a fragment off the, the true lance, the lance in Constantinople could be authentic, and this could just be a piece of it, you know, just like they would take pieces of the true cross and, you know, give them to kings and, and the churches and stuff. They kind of, I've seen several of these, which are just little teeny slivers. Like a toothpick mm-hmm. off the true cross. So, so, from their perspective, the fact that there's one in Constantinople didn't necessarily uh, negate the other one because it seems to have just been a piece of iron rather than an actual, you know, no recognizable lance head.
1: One, uh, one, one aspect of this story that I've always found interesting is that, um, uh, contrary to so many other events, uh similar events that occur uh during the first crusade um there's almost no mention of any input or uh commentary by the native christians in the city there's no you know there's no uh indication at least from any of the from any of the chronicles that you know people asked you know was there a tradition of of a holy lance fragment being in that in that cathedral, because the many of the many of the, the the native Christians did a very good job, at even despite you know centuries of Islamic rule, um, did a very good job of preserving places that they knew of, that you know that they knew about, and they just they just carried on that custodianship uh, uh, through the through the various generations. Um, you see that in the uh, the rather uh, uh, touching vignette. Uh, of when um, Baldwin and Tancred later on in the First Crusade, when Baldwin and Tancred lead a very small party um, to Bethlehem, uh, when the, as the Crusader army approaches Jerusalem, and, and they're met by the native uh, Christian community who had all the relics of the Nativity basically in hiding uh, for centuries, um, and and you know revealed it to them. It's interesting to it, it, it's interesting to me that there's no mention whatsoever any commentary or or participation by the native Christians in this. Um, and so it does, I think that raises a considerable question mark about, you know, the authenticity of of this. Um, because even to this day, um, Catholicism is is actually a very uh rather rigorous when it comes to its relics. And and one of the, you know, one of the one of the conditions is how far back does this go? You know, how how far back has this thing been associated with you know what what people claim it to be? Um, and uh, you know it to me it's just it's it's very curious that, that the the Eastern Christian uh, factor isn't there with this.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I never well, thought of it that way, Rand. That's interesting. Most of them I, would have thought I haven't either most of them would have thought it was yeah. in
2: Constantinople. So you know they in that regard. Apparently some of the uh, Christians of Antioch come out and venerate uh, the cross when it is carried in procession by the the Crusaders. Hmm. But I think we should also note that, uh, the, it wasn't just the discovery of the cross that was important. Peter Bartholomew also had a number of other visions and prophecies uh, about forthcoming Crusader victory. So, so the cross, uh, or excuse me, not the cross, the, uh, the Lance in a sense validated Peter Bartholomew's visions and then his visions and prophecies gives you the morale boost. So, so Christ's presence is there and it affirms Peter Bartholomew's, uh, visions and his visions say we're going to win. Therefore, you know, it boosts the morale even more than just here's a holy relic. Because you know relics, there were there were lots of relics around, and this is a you know a great one. But the visions associated with the relic uh, further boosted the morale.
0: Yeah. All right. Good points, everybody. So the next big thing that's going to happen here is that the Crusaders are going to actually plan a breakout attack from Antioch, and it's about a month or so after they've been holed up in Antioch. And uh, Bohemond actually is going to, to organize this, this attack, this sally from the city. And um, it's, it's, it's very well organized. It's so it's one of the most interesting aspects of, of the First Crusade, I think. Uh, this is going to happen on June 28th. Um, at this point, the Crusaders have very few horses. Uh, the number I got from Thomas Madden was 200 horses at this point. Um, so, you know, compare that to all the horses that, uh, that Karabaka has. He's got, you know, an enormous army of, of cavalry. Um, most of the army is going to have to fight on foot for the Crusaders. There's just not going to be uh, very many horses available. So I want to get sort of an overview of what happens with this battle. And uh, Dr. Hamlet, I would, I would love to hear your uh, description of that. Do you want to kind of describe what... what What happens here? Um,
2: The crusaders are in a strategic situation where they basically have no choice uh, but to march out of the city and fight. Uh, They're they're essentially out of food. They could maybe last a few more weeks and then that's it. There is no relief army available to them. So if they stay and fight, they have to endure a long siege. They can't endure a long siege because they have no food and no way to get food. There's no relief coming. And, uh, so their only option is to fight. The question then becomes how to do that most effectively. And, uh, the, what they do is they come out of the bridge gate, which is the major uh, bridge over the, uh, the river Orontes, which flows by uh, antioch there they cross over that and everybody is is essentially on foot there's a couple hundred knights, and their function is not going to be to, to do this traditional nightly charge it's going to be to support you know uh, ride back and forth take take care of some uh, you know ancillary issues maybe shore up a, a weak point of the line uh what that means, though, is all of the knights are, are fought, fighting as infantry, basically, which greatly strengthens the uh, quality uh, and heavy infantry quality of, of the crusader army. So being on foot can be, in, in a sense, a benefit to the crusaders in this battle, because the Turks are not used to a Western uh, crusader army they fought Byzantine armies, but they, they fight differently than did the crusaders, uh, Suleiman, or excuse me, Kilach Arslan of Rum, had fought the crusaders, but he wasn't there to advise the army. This is a new army. they have never fought this type of battle before. And so being all on foot meant that they could create a solid, thick, uh, disciplined shield ball. Their experience meant meant they could be disciplined. Uh, they would know that the Turks are going to do a, you know, charge up, shoot some arrows and run away. They're used to that now. That's not going to upset them or make them try to chase the Turks or anything like that. So basically uh, the goal is to uh, get the entire army out of the city because if they attack with only half the army, uh, you know, they have to have a concentration of force with the maximum uh, number of soldiers possible. They, they therefore line up in uh, columns, they march out, and then the first column, using the uh, Orantes River and the, and the gatehouse as a base to, to hold their flank, their right flank, it turns from a column to a line and then starts marching, and as marching forward, and then the next column comes out, and it goes up further past the length of the first column, turns into lying and then then joins them and they essentially are able to get uh they're divided into four major formations and then within those formations there's several minor ones they organize a, lo- a, co- a long ethnic uh, uh, organization that is all the french are together in the normans are together or the southern italian Normans they also organize according to feudal organization that is everybody follows with their lord and so forth they march out and and they try to form a giant line here. Now, now there's some problems with that in that there's apparently Turks down at the St. George gate, which is further South from the bridge gate and and they come and try to attack them in the rear, but there there's not numerous enough to, to, uh, harm the crusaders. We need to note a couple things about the Turks during this battle. Number one, everybody surrounding the city is on foot. Uh, That is to say, you don't ride your horse around when you're trying to besiege a city. You've got to do this on foot. Now, they may have had some horses there, but most of their horses were not by Antioch. The reason for this is pasture. They had taken them up several miles to the north to some big plains, which is much better watered, and they were watering and feeding their horses up there. An army of the size of Bogos might have had 20,000 horses. So this is a huge number, and they simply can't have them all right by the city. So so they are fighting Turks on foot and most Turks don't fight on foot. I mean, that's just not their natural uh, military operation. So when they're forced to fight the Crusaders on foot, it puts the Turks at a disadvantage. Uh, Now, some some of the Turks had some horses, but most of them were further north. Some of these seem to try to uh, kind of circle around and do their traditional outflanking and circling movements, but Ah, uh, the Crusaders are able to hold the line with this uh, heavy infantry shield wall, and the Turks are essentially unable to to break that formation. The goal of the uh, archery harassment of, of mountain archers is break up the formation, then you can move in. And the infantry do a spectacular job just holding their uh, their form and then they start marching forward. Well, more of the Turks that are, defi- that are surrounding the city start coming there, but we need to re- remember a bunch of the Turks are up in the citadel and, and, and around the mountain, a bunch of the Turks are surrounding the city, but probably half the army is up with the horses and, uh, and they probably rotating troops around. Uh, that is each, each regiment will serve some time at the fortress and then go back and, and uh, so forth. So Kerboga is up in the north. He's several miles away from the battle. When he hears about the battle he he starts to mobilize his cavalry and he's faced with essentially a dilemma do i let all the turks uh, all the crusaders out of the city or do i wait or, or do i attack them immediately and win a victory over a small portion of the army but the rest will run in and hide in the citadel uh and so his hope is that i can if i let them all out i can win a decisive victory and and the battle's over and I don't have to continue this siege. Because remember, Karaboga is facing the same type of logistical problems that the Crusaders face and the pasture watering problem for his 20,000 horses or whatever he had. He decides to, to wait and let the Crusaders all come out partly i think that is simply because he had no choice because his army was several miles away and it probably would have taken an hour for the crusaders to come out and make their formations and it would have taken at least that long for kerboga to reach the crusaders so what the crusaders do is is they start moving their uh, shield wall forward and the turks that will attack them some on horseback many on foot Uh, don't attack them forming a shield wall but forming a skirmishing line and a harassing line and the crusaders are simply able to move forward and eventually these turks start to break and about the time the the turkish infantry start to break kerboga's first group comes in first group of of cavalry from the north come in and and they are uh they move in and they attack the crusaders, but again, don't come, you know, one-on-one face to face with them. It's a skirmishing battle. And as the infantry all start to flee, the cavalry start to flee. And when the rest of Karabulga's army comes on the scene, uh, probably half his army didn't even get in the fight. All these fleeing troops start moving through his, his, uh, his main body and it completely breaks up their formations and at that moment all of the uh, dubious vassals decide to cut and run they have no reason to stay and fight for kerboga they hope he loses they can preserve then, their own their own uh, domains in damascus or wherever it might be and and so what you see is an initial flight of the first formations the second formation gets in there and gets starts getting broken up and as the army is starting to break up in panic all of his allies flee. Now, now some of them stayed, but, but the ones that are dubious allies, they just take off. And what that does is essentially his army disintegrates before his eyes and the crusaders just keep marching and the Turks start to flee and the crusaders are able to march all the way a couple miles and get to the camp and sack the Turkish camp. And when that occurs, the emir in the Citadel realizes that he has no hope now. And he immediately surrenders essentially to save his, his soldiers lives and treasure, you know, whatever personal belongings they have. And, uh, there's some dispute about who, who gets the Citadel, but it ends up in, in Borlman's hands and, and it's essentially a decisive victory. And it is that because the Crusaders were able to concentrate all their forces the Turks were on foot that were besieging the city, the breakup of the army of the initial, uh, Turkish battalions, the flight of the, uh, the dubious allies, and then the kind of, uh, the, the breakup of, uh, Kerboga's main force by all of these fleeing, uh, soldiers, uh, breaking into his force and, and disrupting his force where he basically loses command and then everybody panics and runs. So that's how I understand what happened at the battle and it's a decisive victory for the crusaders but it is not it, it's decisive not because they destroyed his whole army but because his alliance breaks up and he withdraws. Anyway, that's how I understand yeah, I, the, the situation. Yeah.
1: I would I would argue uh, I would argue from a str- from just a purely strategic standpoint the the victory at Antioch is perhaps the decisive victory um, of the First Crusade it's it, it's it's the one that that really makes it possible for them to even to even Jerusalem yes um, um, strategically it, that's it really does right.
2: yeah yeah it it's it really does a bit, it, it's, it's it's a little. Uh, it's not decisive in the sense of completely destroying the enemy army. No. Tactically, but strategically, yes, it is their supreme victory. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, and I mean, Karboga um, practically disappears from the record uh, after this. He, 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 you know, basically returns to Mosul in humiliation. Um, uh, after this and and uh, you, you know you can one can only imagine that you know his uh, his dreams of uh ex, you know expanding his power base out into the levant uh, have just been very abruptly crushed um and uh and in, in in no small part to uh the emirs who sold him out <laughs> um but uh you know it, it's a the 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 action at Antioch, is, is it really is just incredible. And I, and I think even tactically, it, it, it demonstrates just how professional the crusading army has become at this point. Um, I also think it's interesting that this is the first engagement, and actually the last, that Bowman uh, was officially given total command of the army um, by the fellow crusader leaders. Um, you know, unlike at Doraleum, where he was... Uh, um, you know, where he, he, he was in command of the vanguard almost by, uh, you know, almost by happenstance. Um, you know, here it, it, you know, that all the chronicles made a very big deal that, um, you know, just before they went out to face Carboga, all the crusader leaders gave Bowman's ultimate command over the army. And, um, you know, he, uh, John France does a really good job in, in victory in the East talking about how, you know, the hallmark of Bowman's disposition was aggression. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he never stood on the defensive and he never allowed the enemy to settle his formation. And you really see that at Antioch at the, at, at the Sally, uh, uh, with Kerboga. you know, Sally's are, uh, during this, in the context of siege a of Sally is incredibly risky gamble. Um, in fact, it's probably the riskiest thing a defending force could ever do, um, because you're essentially, uh, foregoing your, uh, you know, your very strong defensive position uh, for for uh, you know you're you're coming outside the walls outside the protection of the walls to, to meet your besiegers out in the field and uh, and you could really tell Bowman's ultimate objective was to close with the Turkish forces as fast as possible and hit them hard and hit them first. Um,
3: yeah, and, and, and in part and that's
1: pushing because pushing them back.
2: In part that's because the Turks had uh more archers than the crusaders so any type right. of static warfare is to the disadvantage of the crusaders essentially
1: they, yeah essentially they had to come in close and grab them by the belt right. buckle before they could do anything um and uh it, it really was just a, I, I think it, even even tactically it it, it, it highlighted uh bowman's and, and really the rest of the crusaders too because it wasn't just a one-man affair um uh, the 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 real tactical superiority um, of the of this crusading force by this at this juncture um, and that they they understood who they were up against they knew how to fight them um, and they had the, uh, they had the discipline and the command and control uh, to be able to see it through even even in incredibly risky maneuvers like like sallying out from Antioch
2: yeah I, I, one other thing I forgot to mention is that they uh, Adamar carries the uh, the lance i think it actually is raymond uh, his uh, the chronicler that carries the lance on a as a banner and and the morale then of the army uh the crusaders had a big advantage in that as well in that many of the crusader soldiers really thought that that god was on their side and they were going to win this victory uh by divine uh intervention and so that type of uh morale boost also contributed i think to their victory
0: yeah, um, good points there from both you guys. It, it, the thing that I think is so interesting about this point in um, w- w- about the Battle of Antioch is, yeah, that, that point of the, of the bridge gate was such a good place to actually launch this attack because they had their... The, the River Orontes is going to cover one of their flanks and reduce the ability of the, the Turks to, to fully engage with them, and on top of that, it's kind of like, um, you know, I guess the the term would maybe be choke point, right, Rand? Like this is kind of a point where the, you know, the the army, um, uh, Carabos's army is very is kind of a little bit unwieldy in a certain respect. I mean, it's very large. It's it's dispersed all around Antioch. It's,
1: yeah, and it's, so a, they it's only, extremely unwieldy.
0: Yeah, and they only have to defeat necessarily that immediate. Um, portion of the army that they're facing as they sally forth from the bridge gate and once they're kind of able to make that group retreat and you know once uh, you know, that portion of the army sort of breaks and flees that right there yeah. is, is the thing that starts the, the ball rolling down the hill and gets the you know it, it gets uh, um unloyal allies to, to take off yeah. and it oh, gives, them, a, a, it's a, it gives big,
2: them the excuse they need to do right. what they wanted to do anyway. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's a. It, it was a. It really was a. For, for the Crusaders, it was a. It was a victory of of a couple of tactical concepts. One was the constant, the effective concentration of mass. Well, the mass has, his his combat power at the at the precise points where it was needed. Um, you know, e- even despite facing a much larger force. Uh, and it was a failure to concentrate mass on the on on Carboga's part. He you know he had this very large, very unwieldy army that was kind of spread out all over the place, um, uh, you know, and and they were they were they were unable to react when the Crusaders found that spot, found that soft spot, and pushed and pushed hard.
2: And, um, in a sense, it was a surprise attack. Even though it took them an hour or so to to, to organize, it was. Long it took less time than it took Caraboga to concentrate his force to oppose them. So the Crusaders yep. had a, a surprise in a sense, but then also probably at the actual point of battle had a numerical superiority, even though in, in the large context they had numerical inferiority through concentration of force, they gained at the crucial time and place uh, numerical superiority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good points, everybody. Well, one other thing to note: uh, as they come out the gate, there's about a two-mile plain, and then there's some rough, hilly country off to the west, which would also serve as a block to uh, Crusader Cav- or Turkish cavalry tactics. So basically, they they could fill up the plain with with their their uh, infantry in this huge shield wall, and then just do a constant, steady advance and just keep. Push, 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 push as, as uh, hard as they as they could go and keep their formation uh, against any Turks that came up to them. And the Turks kind of came in piecemeal. So you beat one little group, they flee. Another group comes, they flee. And and you know it got that snowball rolling of panic.
0: And uh, I think that helped too. Yeah, and I, one thing I've also always thought is, you know, we get this idea that. Care book. Uh, it's like he he had this option of okay, well, do I you know fully engage these guys now, or do I let them all come out of the city? And I think sort of the common wisdom is, you know, well, that was kind of stupid. You should have uh, really hit them a lot harder than you did. Um, you know, rather than kind of allowing them to fully deploy. But I mean, I, I really, I've always been able to see the logic behind his decision there. I mean, he doesn't want to spend you know months and months and months. Outside of Antioch, he doesn't want to have to damage Antioch either necessarily. I mean, you know, it's very hard to damage anyway. You know, I can kind of see why he might have thought, okay, well, you know, I'll just let you know, I'll let these guys come out and then I'll just annihilate them. I mean, I think his big error was he didn't realize that he was dealing with such a capable fighting force. I think maybe what he was hoping would happen is, okay, well, you know, this is this is a small uh, group that's, uh, you know, that's that's been uh, heavily that's really uh, uh, endured a lot of attrition already. They they aren't uh you know they they're weary. They they're pent up in this this city. They're starving and stuff. Uh, you know surely you know just get these guys out here and I could just uh, smash them. But I don't think he realized that he was dealing with such an effective fighting force. So no, I but- would
1: I would say that's very correct. I I think that the fact that he or the you know the, the, the fact that Kerbogov very clearly underestimated who he was facing uh is is pretty apparent. Um I know there's some uh you know there's some apocryphal uh you know vignettes of you know that, that portray him uh you know playing chess with one of his subordinate commanders, you know, when the Crusaders began sallying out, you know, and 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 he very much is portrayed as sort of having this kind of very flippant attitude towards, you know, oh yes, well that's fine. You know, we'll 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 deal with it in due time, uh, kind of thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, sir, they're here. Like, <laughs> you know, they're they're at the outskirts of your camp, like right now, you know, um, yeah. kind of thing. So it yeah, it, you know, and whether whether or not, you know, that, you know, whether or not the chess playing story is true or not, um, you know, I think it does illustrate that um he did uh uh, very much underestimate them, uh, to his, to his ultimate, uh, his ultimate defeat.
2: It's not just underestimation, although that's crucial. It's also that he didn't know how they would fight. He'd never fought an army like this before. And so his expectations were, uh, that it, it would be a battle more like against Byzantines in which Turkish tactics, uh, you know, what they do, they, they kind of adapted their tactics to fight. Uh, that type of combat, and here there's this brand new thing that uh, uh, he didn't know how, tactically, to uh, get to the crusader weaknesses. So it's both, and in a sense that's uh, underestimating the enemy, but it's also just not knowing the enemy.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so, so that's what happens um, with, with the Battle of Antioch. Uh, the Crusaders win, Kirpaka is uh, totally defeated, and his, his army dissipates. Uh, and this is going to leave the Crusaders in control of Antioch, and it's going to set them up uh, with the ability to control a, a fairly large chunk of northern Syria uh, as, w- with the establishment of the Principality of Antioch, which is going to happen over the next few years. So, yeah, this, as, as you were saying earlier, Rand, this is a major victory for the First Crusade. Uh, this is a one more step on the road toward Jerusalem. So, yeah, this, is, this has been a, a really interesting discussion. Um, I'm going to jump over to the chat here and see if anybody has any questions uh, before we go for tonight. Uh, if anybody's listening and you have any questions, go ahead and ask us in the chat the panel will now take your questions but does anybody have any further comments about uh, this point in in uh, you know the crusade i mean uh, you know dr Hamblin where where are the crusaders now like what what issues are they facing Uh, what's what's the next step
2: well what we're going to see is uh, first of all they have uh, They've got to kind of resupply their army and and rest. Just they've been through so much that everybody's exhausted. There's insufficient food. They're running low on money. All that type of stuff. So they they need to stay for a while. A big problem's going to be uh, the the death of Adamar on August first, just a few days after the battle, is going to lead to a a crisis of leadership within the crusade. And uh, I, I assume we'll t- talk about that next time. But there, it's the the fissures within the crusading movement have been held together by common necessity uh, up through this point. Now when the threat uh, is is at least mitigated at Antioch, all of these kind of rivalries, jealousies, uh, fissures are going to come to to the fore and they are going to have some real squabbling among the princes. And then they've got to kind of resolve all that in order to now make the last leg of their journey, which is the march down to Jerusalem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one guy asked the question: um, If Bowman had not been there, would the Battle of Antioch have failed? Um, what do you think, guys? I think that's probably. I, I would say it's it's it. That's that's a pretty big what if, but it's it seems kind of reasonable to say that you know he was pretty essential to what happened.
1: Bowman really was the the, the linchpin of, uh, of of the siege of Antioch. I mean, he was the uh, he he was he was by far the MVP um, uh, of the siege of Antioch. I, I think uh, I think to you know, there's always the what if um, factor, but uh, I would argue that that it probably would have ended very differently had had he not been there. Hmm. Uh, no was,
3: disagreements here, and I want to back. Track a little bit, uh, and you know the strategic planning. You know what knowledge did Bohemond have of of you know the composition of of Carboga's army and the you know the the coalition and the, how much did that play into his into his planning. I mean, did did he know that these men would you know would would did any knowledge that they would conceivably desert uh, play anything play any role in 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 the strategic
2: planning for the, for the the breakout or for the we know that some uh, they sent some ambassadors and so they probably got to look at the camp and look look at the situation in general terms I think. Uh, They'd certainly heard rumors from, uh, you know, scouts and local people and maybe like a couple Armenian spies who brought in some cows to sell the Turks and, and got some information that way. But I, I don't think he had a, a clear grip on on the details. Uh, most medieval armies couldn't get that type of information. A lot of rumor and a lot of false rumor, too. Uh, just um, just a, one. Just one comment, quick comment on Bowman. I think uh, he was certainly uh, decisive in the battle. I suspect if he hadn't been there, they might not have gone out at all. And and they yeah. may have probably just ended up dying, uh, you know, surrendering from starvation. Yeah. Um, so there's no way to know. But that that would be my guess, is that Bohemond's aggressiveness kind of pushed forward the rest. Maybe Godfrey could have taken that role if, if Borman hadn't been there. So it's, it's possible they could still have won, but it, okay. it would be iffy. There's,
1: a, there's an interesting question here. Um, did Crusaders use any siege weapons uh, during the First Crusade? This is coming to us from uh, Mr. Uh, Uther Lightbringer. Um, few, uh, I know some of the sources mentioned uh, both at Nicaea and the Antioch, they mentioned some. Um, however, from what I recall, uh, they weren't very effective. Um, in fact, uh, I think they had, uh, I think especially, uh, like more kind of like an earlier in the crusade, uh, a lot of their, uh, a lot of the siege engines that they, that they, t- that they tried to make were, uh, pretty shoddily made and, um, uh, and, and whatnot. But, uh, I think, uh, uh, there was some, um, there were some siege weapons that were, uh, that the parts were brought, uh, with the, the, the Anglo uh, the Anglo-Byzantine fleet that that sailed into uh, that sailed into uh, I believe it was Saint George, um, uh, or not Saint George. The, um, the Saint Simeon. Saint Simon. Uh, yeah, Saint Simeon. Um, uh, I think there were some components of siege engines that were brought in, if I recall, um, but I can't remember like what impact they had. On, on well, the during siege. the siege
0: of Antioch, there weren't they weren't really doing that, right? No. Yeah, that but, would be late at Nicaea. We've got siege equipment, and in Jerusalem, we do, but here that right. doesn't really play a part in in where we. No, huh? I think the they did have siege engines of sorts,
2: but they were not powerful enough to project the stone with enough uh, size and speed and distance to damage walls as powerful as Antioch. So, so they didn't even try. Uh, no. At Jerusalem, they mainly used uh, siege towers. But they they did have some uh, projectile, you know, stone projectile machines. These were not trebuchets like you see in the movies. Those come in the, you know, around Saladin's time. Uh, Yeah. So they were much smaller and had a a lower range and a lower velocity and a lower uh, weight of projectile that they could throw. They, They also did a lot, some undermining. Apparently at Nicaea they had a... They, they call them sometimes a tortoise or a cat, or there's different names they use. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a, it's a shed of sorts that that they build and cover with wood and maybe some skins and, and you know keep it wet so that it doesn't go on fire. They push it up against the wall and they try to tear the walls down. So they were able to bring down a a tower uh, uh, at Nicaea through both undermining and some uh, projectile work. Yeah but it was not very numerous and not very effective, for the most part. Yeah. The tower at, at Jerusalem was the most effective siege engine that they used.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's go—you guys want to do one more question? Uh, somebody yeah. asked what, what happened to the Holy Lance after— or, That's the one I was, okay, was
1: going to yeah. get yeah. Get what happened to the
0: Holy ladies. Lance after all this? That, that is interesting
1: it really uh i don't think anyone really knows um it's uh i I do know the the relic of the holy lance or at least the lance head that is uh is currently in the imperial museum in vienna um i believe from what i understand that's the uh that is the the holy lance that was in constantinople Mm, um so the holy lance that uh that was found at Antioch in the first crusade there. I I don't think there's any real record of what happened to that, um, at all. And it it most likely doesn't, uh, um, doesn't exist anymore today, or at least if it does, no one knows where it, where it is. Um, I know I have some, some people, uh, you know, mentioning the, the, you know, the Holy spirit, the spirit of destiny, the Lance of Longinus, um, actually the, 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 the spirit of destiny and the Lance of Longinus are two different things. Um, and this is this is me as a Roman Catholic is 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 gonna step in here. The Lance of Longinus is the it's the shaft of the of the spear. And that is in that is contained in one of the four central altar pillars in St. Peter's in Rome. Um there's a very there's a huge statue of St. Longinus behind it, and the the shaft is kept somewhere is enshrined somewhere within that pillar um uh, i think down down near the base um and they only bring it out once a year um they there's there's four main relics around the the four are you uh, speaking uh, of the baldachino
3: uh rand
1: yes no 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 not the baldachino no the no the the four stone pillars that are around the baldachino um okay. uh and it's uh the veil of veronica the 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 shaft of longinus um the uh a piece of the cross of saint andrew and honestly i can't remember what the fourth one was um but uh yeah so the so the the lance of longinus and the spear of destiny are two different things the the spear of destiny is the is the spearhead that is currently in the imperial museum in vienna Um, and that's the, that was, it's been associated with the Holy Roman emperors of Germany, uh, at least ever since the, um, uh, the, uh, the fourth crusade and the, and the, the sack of Constantinople, um, from whence it was taken. Um, some, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of, uh, uh. Mythological stories that surround it. Some say, you know, it goes all the way back to the time of Charlemagne, which is why the Holy Roman Emperors always kind of had a, a claim on it. Um, others say it, it goes back to uh, early Spain. So there's all sorts of uh, almost kind of, uh, kind of kind of kind of Arthurian esque uh, sort of Holy Grail ish kind of legends surrounding it. But um, but uh, as of right now, I mean, there's been they've done. Uh, you know modern researchers have done research on it um, and they you know it's, it's very difficult to, to determine its actual age uh, because it's been embellished uh, throughout the throughout the centuries and had things added on to it um, so it's uh, it really I guess this is a long way of saying we don't really know um, and officially the church doesn't really know and uh, you know they they uh, they um, they very they very meekly admit you know admit as much uh, today. Uh,
2: my uh, I don't think anybody knows what happened to the lance that they found in Antioch. My suspicion is that it was taken to Jerusalem and then placed in a reliquary and mm-hmm. probably kept there somewhere. But it was very quickly superseded by the true cross, which became the, you know, the military relic. And so the land's kind of, and probably, you know, it got stolen in some plundering thing that happened to Jerusalem, you know, a couple times during the crusades. So, uh, I I know of no source that describes, uh, any of that type of stuff. And part of the problem was it was never universally accepted. It was basically, you know, the Provençals, Who, who, were, who were really into that lens? So,
1: yeah, it, it really does just sort of disappear from the record um, after the after after Antioch.
0: I had to unmute myself there. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so some really good information there, guys. Um, I think we've probably gone long enough. Uh, does anybody else have anything they want to add to this particular podcast? I'm good okay great yeah this has been a a really good discussion i really enjoyed it guys uh thanks so much for everybody's contribution so i'm just gonna say uh thanks to each of you uh scott thanks for being here sure always glad to always say glad to be here Stephen. absolutely and uh just since we're talking about the first crusade um fyi to everybody scott has written a really good uh historical novel called um Uh, to shine with honor and uh, it's actually going to be a three-part series set during the first crusade era so uh, it's worth checking out if you uh, find the first crusade entertaining second volume is in progress now absolutely and i will link to that in the information box uh, in this podcast and rand i want to thank you for being here thanks so much
1: as always glad to be here
0: Excellent. And Dr. Hamlin, we've really enjoyed uh, getting to have you on for so many podcasts. Uh, Thanks so much for being a part of this and contributing your knowledge.
2: Happy to participate. Thanks.
0: Excellent. Uh, Dr. Hamlin's got a really good website for anybody who's interested. It's called crusadingwarfare.net. So Dr. Hamlin, what have you been doing uh, with your uh, website and YouTube channel lately? Well,
2: I'm essentially working through the First Crusade, uh, trying to create a a series of, um, maps of the military history of the crusades with as much detail as, as possible. And then from those maps, I, uh, kind of display them on the computer in keynote and, uh, do videos where I describe what's going on and kind of uh, narrate the maps. And then I do the next batch and and do another video. So every, you know, maybe twice a week, I, I do some videos. I've got one that's all ready to go. I'll probably do it today or tomorrow. So.
0: Yeah, it's some really good stuff, Uh, crusadingwarfare.net, a lot of really good information about the military history of the Crusades, and also, of course, there's that YouTube channel, which has the same name, Crusading Warfare, so um, yeah, I've got that linked in uh, the information box for this podcast, so you can find that down below if you're interested, and um, yeah, so thanks so much to everybody who's uh, been a part of this, uh, who's been listening, Uh, Thanks for the questions, everybody. Sorry we couldn't get to more questions. At some point, we'll do another podcast that will just be uh, taking questions. So, um, you know, everybody who's got any questions they have, they will get answered at some point. Uh, This is Real Crusades History. Um, You can find us at realcrusadeshistory.com. I also want to just remind everybody, if you like what we do, um, you can go to our Patreon and support us. And we have a new thing going where if you pledge $5 a month or more to our Patreon, you will get access to exclusive content on our Patreon feed. So so that's some good stuff. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being here. And we will be back next Tuesday, right, guys? Right. Yep. All right. Next Tuesday, we're gonna we're gonna get into the advance on Jerusalem, and, and uh, hopefully talk a little bit about the uh, the siege, the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. We might get all the way to the end of the siege of Jerusalem. We'll we'll see about that. But yeah, you'll have to wait till next Tuesday to find out what happens after uh, after the vict- victorious uh, encounter with Carabagat at, at Antioch. So <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday, same time, uh, at seven p.m. U.S. Central Time.
1: Okay.